going to read a word today. It comes from 1 Corinthians 15. Um, let's, let's get started. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. That is how the scripture is supposed to be read on Easter morning. This text, by the way, my name is Andrew, pastor here at Sanctuary. It's great to be with you. I want to welcome you again. Um, we, uh, we are part of um, this tradition that at the first of the week, we meet on Sundays, um, versus meeting on Saturday, post-Easter, this was, the church marked out the calendar that this would be the day that we would come together at the beginning of a new week to mark the day of the resurrection because we're Easter people, right? This is the famous phrase says, living in a Good Friday world. And when we come together, we'll pause, and we didn't do all of this today, but we'll make sure that um, uh, we, we practice generosity together. So if you're a part of this church, um, we just encourage you, if this is a normal day that you come and you give, to do that this morning. But I mention that only now and that along with practicing giving and making sure there are no needy, along with making sure that we, um, we sing together and join breath and give thanks to God and, and make sure that um, we recognize as a family uh, who is at the center of the universe. And as we take time to hang out, just to be with one another, participate in fellowship, of all the things that happen on that first day of the week, one of them is that we open the scriptures together. And so if you're brand new to the Bible, brand new to church, you've got a whole lot of questions. Why on earth does a book that was assembled and put together thousands of years ago have to do? Like what does that have to say to me? You're not alone. We called Sanctuary Sanctuary for a reason. We wanted it to be a safe place to journey, a safe place to wrestle with the biggest of questions, as they, specifically as they relate to the person of Jesus. And what I would say to you is lean into what is probably uh, an important ethic if you are from uh, this area, which is to be open. I want to encourage you to be open, to truly be open. Because this book, these letters and accounts, that we as followers of Jesus believes, we believe actually has authority because it is the story of God. You may not be able to, to say uh, here today that this book has authority, but I would just humbly ask you to consider something that has uh, produced like the guardrail of our modern justice ethics. Something that uh, people th for thousands of years have turned to to wrestle with what does it mean that, that, that there might be a God our core cultural foundational understandings of love, even if you or others around you have divorced them from the way of Jesus, are rooted in the scriptures. 
that there's been something about this book that has captivated imaginations for centuries. So it was G.K. Chesterton who said about tradition. You could apply this to opening the scriptures. That <clears throat> I do not want to um, be held hostage to the opinions and ideas of people who just happen to be walking around right now. So I say all that to the, to the person here who enters into a day with a bunch of people in the 21st century talking about a rabbi who claims to have risen from the dead. If you're coming in with skeptical, with any kind of like skeptical um, vision, uh, man, like join not just many in the room here, but join the actual scriptures. The passage that was just, we just read from is a response to a bunch of people at a church in Corinth who had a whole lot of doubts about the resurrection. The scriptures are filled with these doubts. Which honestly is one of the most compelling things about the Bible. It is such a deeply human book. I've said this so many times and we'll probably say it so many more times. The Bible is one of the worst propaganda books. It's, it truly is horrible. I mean everything. They do everything wrong. The Bible is put together and assembled how we understand it now. Uh, ways, I mean, years and years and years after the events actually happened. Plenty of time to doctor the thing up, adjust details so that they might play better. So you look out at the first time that people actually begin to see outside of the women at the tomb, which is a whole other thing. They begin to, they, uh, begin to experience and see the resurrected Jesus. And just straight away in the text it says, yeah, some people believed and then a bunch of other people doubted. Like why start with that? Why? Why not have Zacchaeus, the tax collector, somebody who's um, who, if they testified, their, their um, story would hold up in court. Why not have him be the one that finds Jesus at the tomb? Because in this day and age, a woman's testimony wasn't worth a thing. But in every one of the Gospels, of all of the energetic, exciting details floating around the Gospel, you have in every single account of what the life of Jesus was like, all of them include women finding him at the tomb. Bad detail. Pull that detail out if you want this thing to hold. We could go down the list. Why on earth? If you're going to make up a myth of this proportion, culturally, we know this. Like, as we look, sociologically, we look back through history, almost very few myths actually start in the hometown. So you're going to start some myth and epic journey rooted in the very place that you're saying it's happened where a resurrected Jesus took place. Sociologists still struggle with figuring out how to make sense of how Christianity spread so fast. It's not how myths and stories like this move. It is a complete anomaly. Now I say all this to any of you coming in a hardened skeptic, I'm not going to change your mind. I say all this at least to create some plausibility of the openness of what's being talked about today. Because I recognize Christians believe some weird things. And this might be the weirdest thing we believe. Anyone want to give an amen to that? <laughs> Dude rose from the dead and this has some implications for me. All right, here we go. The passage, again, that was read comes at the end of a section where Paul, who's writing to a church not unlike ours in the city of Corinth talking to them about the resurrection. Here's why the resurrection matters. A bunch of people are doubting it. A bunch of people have questions about how it relates to them having eternal life. Because followers of Jesus believe these are connected, that he was the first fruits, it says in the scriptures. It calls um, Jesus the Adam, like the second Adam, which is this simple way of saying, 
Actually, there's this whole new creation bursting forth right here in the midst of this one. That starting with Jesus over the last 2,000 years, God has been inaugurating his kingdom. That something new, heaven is beginning to come to earth in all sorts of different ways and ultimately will culminate in him returning. And that that thing that happened, Jesus rising from the dead, is like a preview of what's going to happen for all of us. So Paul gets done unpacking in all of these beautiful and sometimes complicated and fascinating ways, unpacking the resurrection and trying to help this church trust that the resurrection is real. He says in verse 20, right before this, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep, of those who've died. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. He says this is of the utmost importance. He says if you don't believe this, the whole thing falls apart. To not believe in the resurrection then is to simply like believe some truths about maybe a sharp rabbi who had some good ideas of how to live, which is how honestly many of us regard Jesus. I could get rooting your life around somebody who says these things who carves out a certain way of living. People do this all the time, whether it's the Four Noble Truths or Socrates or go down the list of like interesting ideas of those that have come in the past. The major difference Paul's saying in the resurrection is it's not just that he had some great ideas about how to live, it's that he's still out there and he's still running around. Philip Yancey says this, in many respects, I would find an unresurrected Jesus easier to accept. Easter makes him dangerous. Because of Easter, I have to listen to his extravagant claims and can no longer pick and choose from his sayings. Moreover, Easter means he must be loose out there somewhere. (laughs) That's good, right? I don't know if I believe it. It's good, right? He must be out there somewhere. Frederick Buechner says Easter means we can never nail him down. Not even if the nails we use are real and the thing we nail him to is a cross. Like the first disciples, I never know where Jesus might turn up. He said it was better for me to go to send my spirit that will remind you of who I am and teach you about who I am. There is something else this morning, though, that I want us to lean into. Something else that makes the resurrection critical. And that is this promise of eternal life. There are all sorts of implications of this day. It's why as a pastor, I've got Easter sermons for years. And eventually all of you will forget the one I gave 10 years ago. And I'll just give that one again. It's a joke. There's so many implications of this day. But the one that honestly, for so many reasons, I won't get into today. I also, I try to almost shy away from. Because anyone who's come, come up in the church has probably heard somewhere along the line, probably some caricature of some like maybe fundamentalist church space somewhere else of, oh yeah, it's that classic sermon that if you believe Jesus, you will like have eternal life and then it doesn't matter how you live. I just want to say really briefly, I've spent much of my ministry making sure we don't simplify the gospel to that because it's not that. But I've actually not spent much time talking about eternal life. And that's what we want to talk about today. Because honestly, one of, if not one of the greatest implications of Easter is that reality. But you and I, 
in Christ, they're going to live forever. Why is the resurrection important? Well, frankly, because we all die. And according to the scriptures, the resurrection addresses not just Jesus's mortality, but our own. Is death the end or is there something more? This is the ultimate question. It's been the defining issue for entire cultures from the ancient Egyptians to the present. There is no more important question than any of us will face. It is the issue that makes every other issue trivial. If you have doubts about its significance, go to a hospital or a funeral or talk to a parent who's recently lost a child. You will discover very quickly that the apparent normalcy of everyday life and all the little stresses and worries of everyday life and all the complications and all the whatever it is that fills up everyday life is a, is a sham. Death is the great wrecking ball that destroys everything. Everything that we've done, every way that we're living now, all of our plans for the future are completely and irrevocably destroyed when we die. I know, happy Easter. Like, can we go back to the kids singing at the beginning? At the bottom of everything, we know this already. It's been said that only teenagers uh, live in a state of temporary insanity when they believe themselves immune from death. <laughs> so teens out there, hold on, you got a few more years. We ignore death. We hide from it. But it is the great wrecking ball. People who I can no longer count among my friends because they have died did not go to their graves thinking they had lived long enough. Right now in the Ukraine, people are being slaughtered. Right now as a young man like in our community or connected to our community who's living in a hospital room shattered by the reality of insufficient medicine and ineffective prayer. Right now, my friend's 91-year-old granddad is in a hospital room hoping doctors will be able to heal him because even at 91, he does not want his life to be over. We reach for this extended life, for eternal life. The last 100 years, the American lifespan has almost doubled. We are trying our best to make technology and medicine work for us in any way that it can. Peter Thiel, who is the Silicon Valley billionaire, tech giant, bit of an eccentric dude. He sees blood transfusions as the pathway to radical life extension. He's been able to put together money and a game plan that he is getting transfusions from younger men. Blood transfusions. And that, he believes, is actually the key. So if you can afford to do that, you know, good luck to you. He says this in a Vanity Fair article. He says, I stand against uh, confiscatory taxes, totalitarian collectives, and the ideology of the inevitability of the death of every individual. <laughs> this guy's super emotionally healthy. <laughs> Sorry, Peter, if you're out here somewhere. C.S. Lewis wrote, if I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for what? Another world. It's here, in this passage of scripture that Paul tells the church in Corinth that death has lost its sting. It doesn't hurt like it used to. 
it's been reframed and retold because Jesus rose from the dead. Because Jesus shows us what the last word will actually be or look like. That he will live forever and that we will live forever with him in this restored and renewed world. That his resurrection, again, was like a forerunner and a preview as the opening band to this great rescue that Jesus has started. Paul's telling this church in Corinth that the resurrection is the key to everything because it means that Jesus is alive and the world is headed toward ultimate resurrection. Now, in, in the Gospel of Mark, earlier on in the story, you have Jesus who gives this holy rebuke where he scolds like a certain sect of religious leaders for not believing in the resurrection. So he hasn't even died and risen from the dead. They just, they, they weren't holding this belief that God was going to put everything back together. He blasts their interpretations and he says, you don't, these are the words of Jesus, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. But now as to whether the dead will be raised, God is the God of the living, not the dead. This simple line kind of makes sense of everything Paul is saying and what everyone else in the scriptures is saying who talk about the resurrection, that this proclamation, Jesus' proclamation that reverberates across the centuries is like communicates a relief that death is not the end. So that's what's going on in the first 57 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. He is just telling a bunch of people who are doubting, let me tell you what the resurrection is. Let me tell you why this is important. Let me tell you why this is the linchpin of everything. This is so critical that you get this. And then he says, therefore, he says, in light of all of that, there is a question that I want to answer, and that question is simple. What happens if you actually live like this is true? Because the question, what happens when we die, is not just important uh, for those that are on death's door. It's important because it can inform and it can transform every minute of your day. It really can. It can change your outlook. It can inform and transform what it is to walk in God's economy. What happens if you actually live like this is true. Well, this again is the passage Wesley just read. So, in light of all of this, in light of the reality of Easter, if you were to trust all of that, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. And then he says this, let nothing move you. If I had a title to my sermon today, it would simply be that. Will you say that back with me? Let nothing move you. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. Like you know this isn't the end of the story. He's like, you know that every good and beautiful act that you engage in that lines up with the things of God somehow goes on in God's good creation. Somehow it lasts forever. Every sacrificial act toward your kid, every act of creation and love and beauty and generosity, none of it's wasted. How good is that? If you had like the energy just for a moment to quiet yourselves and take that in, what would that mean for a life both well-lived and a life not lived? How might that immediately convict and how might that immediately set you free? 
What are the things that will actually somehow go on in the work that God started at Easter and will culminate in the day that we all see a renewed and restored heaven and earth? But I want to back up to that line, let nothing move you. Maybe a part two is what does it mean to engage the work of the Lord? But what happens when your life is built on the assurance of eternal life? You become immovable in all the best sorts of ways. If every tear will be wiped away, if death isn't the end, well, you won't be moved. You won't be moved. Um, I have a real hard time watching, um, watching like brutal movies that end poorly. I don't mean poorly like bad cinematography or bad like scripts. Bad acting. I mean, they end poorly, like like everybody. If it's all all done, it's basically every movie that gets nominated for an Oscar. Like I just, I can't, I'm sure there's a couple of hopeful ones out there. I, in part, I blame this on the fact. I don't know if this really it might just be more because of my pain avoidant personality, but in general, I actually think it's more that my life tends to be fairly heavy. I have the distinct honor of being able to have a front row seat to people's pain and confusion, and heartache, often. It's a gift. But it's like when I come home, I had like a little bit of entertainment. I make a little popcorn. It's always popcorn. Sit down on the couch, pull out the computer, snuggle up with the wife. The last thing I want is like three hours of very complicated plot twists that involve lots of despair. Nah. I want to know the end of the movie. I've realized that if I kind of know how it ends and wraps up, then I can go back and actually enjoy it. Some of you are psychoanalyzing me right now. Just pause. Anyone else like this? It's like why superheroes are so popular. 20 years ago, we were not bombarded with like every Marvel movie that comes out is the greatest film ever kind of thing. Like we have a newfound obsession. I've got friends who I never thought would be caught dead watching a superhero movie now. And it's like they're, they're like... They're a little drug when they come home. I know it's going to be fun. I know there's going to be explosions. There's going to be a little bit of plot twist, but pretty much everything's going to work out. Anyone like this? Like if I know the end of the movie, I can enjoy this thing so much more. I, uh, the James Bond film came out, right, towards like, you know, towards the, the back end of the, this pandemic. I'm really sorry. I'm about to spoil a movie for you. Let me tell you something that you don't need to be told. We've just been through a pandemic. We've, we've had a lot of like racial strife, a lot of heartache, a lot. We've just all been paying attention to the aches of the world. And you'd think just going to a James Bond movie would just be easy. Like what a gift. Good guy. Bad guys. He's about to, you know, you know James Bond at the very end will like somehow, you know, rescue everyone by hanging from a cliff on his pinky and be able to turn around like an inhuman move. And we know he's almost going to die, but then it's great, right? Some of you are like, I hate James Bond. Great. This just should have been easy. And he dies at the end of the movie.
Like, the world couldn't give me a James Bond movie. It had to take that from me, too. I clearly have to go to therapy over this. Like, I know how the story ends. Suddenly, the story didn't end that way. When you know how the story ends, there's this sort of freedom and relief that comes over even the hardest parts of the story. And let's not equivocate here. The story is hard. Our lives are hard. Life is pain, princess. There's a whole lot to be afraid of. There is a whole lot in our world that threatens to move us and shake us and beat down any remaining joy and life every stinking day. What's moving you today? What is shaking you today? What are you afraid of today? What big decision? What insecurity? What financial reality? What family system? What is shaking you? And you know it's there and you can't shake it off. Paul would humbly submit to us if he came and wrote this letter like he wrote to the church in Corinth. He would, he, he would just lean in, I think, and just say, hey, in light of the resurrection, my brothers and sisters, don't be moved. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. Through this, preparing for this sermon, I kept having the image of that goodwill hunting scene, that like classic scene where Robin Williams goes and he hugs Matt Damon, who is this like troubled kid, and he's just trying to break through. And he had this horrible upbringing, and he was clearly blaming himself. And so Robin Williams, the teacher, he just holds him and he says over and over, what does he say? It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. So the first three times, Damon's character is like, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. And he keeps saying it. And then, and then Damon starts to get ticked. It's like, stop it, dude. I know you're trying to do, like, stop this, like, psychobabble. You're trying to mess with me. Stop it. And then Robin Williams just holds him like a freaking bear and just keeps going. Like, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And then something snaps. And he just bursts into tears. I just had this image this Easter Sunday as I was looking at this passage. Let nothing move you. I just imagine the resurrected Jesus coming up like around some of you and giving you a hug and just saying, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. No, no, I know, I know, you, I know like you know the verse and I know like, okay, you like sort of cognitively believe Jesus might have risen dead. I'm telling you, you don't have to be afraid anymore because of that. The worst possible thing that could come to someone, that sort of death, actually everything's gonna be made new. I know there's a lot of brokenness around you. I've given this world choice because I love it and love requires choice, which means there's gonna be pain. And the Bible talks about that pain over and over and over. There's gonna be pain and heartache and deception and brokenness. But he's like, look back to me at Easter. You'll see an image of the end. You actually don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. Let nothing move you. The image that comes up again and again, is childbirth. I've heard that childbirth is the most brutal pain ever. (laughs) Why do women keep doing it? (laughs) Because we know the end of the story. Because at the end of that pain, God willing, there's a child 
That's why we go through the pain. Because there's a baby. Because there's new life. This is, to be clear, the exact analogy that is used in the Bible. The world is full of pain, but it's pregnant. I'm not playing fast and loose. Literally, that's what the scripture says. The world is full of pain. I, we know this. But there's actually something new being born right in the midst of it. And the end of that story and the end of that thing being born is eternity with Jesus. With this world made completely new. The image of every tear being wiped away. This is the great reconciliation of all things. What Jesus calls it. And so our pain in this world only appears to be purposeless and only appears to be overwhelming and only appears to be earth-shattering and spirit-breaking when we don't take into account the weight of what God has done. Think of a scale. Paul uses this image. On one side, you have everything that has happened to you, every bit of pain and brokenness and deception and heartache. And then on the other side... He just like drops the scale. It's like on the other side is the weight of everything God's ever done. And it just tips everything else back up. This, this, this is more real than this. The weight of glory outweighs everything else. So what happens when a person actually lives like this is true. We could start with the disciples. They're worried and they're scared in the upper room before the cross and the resurrection. And then like completely full of fear. And then all of a sudden we find just after Easter them charging into the face of death doing the beautiful and redemptive work of God. There are saints throughout the ages who didn't start out as saints who gave their life to the poor and to the hurting and to the most remote, those who run right toward plagues and towards war and towards those deep, unsettling, uncomfortable places of the world. This is what happens when you trust that this is true. You begin to live, live fearlessly. One of my favorite stories, speaking of the saints, of how people have responded to this question, so how, how might this cause us to live differently? On January 27, 1956, Martin Luther King Jr. received a phone call at his home in Montgomery, Alabama. The voice on the other end of the phone said, quote, listen, we tired of you and your mess. If you ain't out of this town in three days, we're going to blow your brains out and blow up your house. And then they hung up. Just a couple months prior, I'm sure many of you know this, the Montgomery bus boycott began when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat and moved to the back of the bus. Although he was the youngest black minister in town, King was elected president of the bus boycott committee, soon became the target of all sorts of threats and hate mail and obscene phone calls. After that phone call, King talks about how he was paralyzed with fear and unable to sleep. Something about me brings me a little comfort. Kind of can view someone like a Dr. King as this like fearless warrior. He describes himself as paralyzed with fear and unable to sleep. He sat at his kitchen table with a cup of coffee and contemplated how he could leave town without looking like a coward. Take this cup from me. And then he prays. And as he prayed, he describes hearing an inner voice. Stand up for righteousness. 
Stand up for justice, it said. Stand up for truth, and I will be with you until the end of the world. The voice promised to never leave me nor ever leave me alone. King describes this as saying he knew the voice belonged to the resurrected Jesus. And in that moment, his fear disappeared. For the first time, he felt the reality of God with him. I pause here. This can happen to you. In a moment of earnest faith and trust and crying out, God was faithful to show up. King said, God convinced him that I can stand up without fear. Four nights later, a bomb went off at King's house while his wife and infant were there. King, who had been speaking at a rally in support of the boycott, he comes home, makes sure his parents are okay, and then he addresses this mob that had gathered around his homes. They had bats, knives, bottles, guns, getting ready to go after several white policemen who were present. After getting the crowd to calm down, King reminded them that he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. He's quoting scripture. And then he went on to say, I want you all to love your enemies. I want you to be good to them. I want you to love them and let them know that you, uh, that you I want to, you to love them and let them know you love them. What we are doing is right. What we are doing is just. God is with us. And so describing that night, one witness said that there were many tears on many faces. The weapons were put down and the crowd then began to sing Amazing Grace. King's wife later said, this could well have been the darkest night in Montgomery's history. But the spirit of God was in our hearts. The sight of Reverend King standing in the rubble of his firebombed home and calling citizens of Montgomery to love those responsible so many people have written about this, changed the course of the civil rights movement. He had preached about Jesus' love, Jesus' forgiveness, Jesus' nonviolence before. But one historian said, quote, but now, seeing the idea in action, millions were touched, if not converted. But the real conversion did not happen on King's bombed out porch, but four nights earlier in that kitchen, over a cup of coffee, his fear was replaced with faith. His fear was replaced by the one who holds his future, by the one who had overcome death. He said the resurrected Jesus, the one who extends the invitation of life forever and the one who promised to always be with him. Now, these aren't just epic stories from like our great Christian tradition People in our community are faced with this same question. All right, so in light of the resurrection, how is it that I won't be moved? Would you turn your attention to the screen? Hi, my name is Ashley Maxey, and I was diagnosed with an incurable disease. This is part of my Easter story. I'll never forget having my phone out at work and racing to the break room when I was getting the call. On June 23rd, 2020, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I think looking back, initially I was in pure shock because I actually ended up going back to work for the remainder of the day. Um, a cancer diagnosis at a young age is a really hard pill to swallow because every aspect of your life, as you know it, gets flipped upside down. But Thankfully, my relationship with God during that time was good. He was like a long distance friend that cheered me on um, when I was having like a really rough day. 
So I started treatment in July of 2020 and finished everything up, I think, in February of 2021. And for a few months after that, everything was going really well. Um, my energy was coming back, my hair was growing back in, um, but then randomly I started having pain in my rib. Um, I waited for about two weeks before calling my oncologist, hoping that it would just go away, that it was like a fluke. Uh, the team ordered scans and it turned out my rib was okay, uh, but there was a concerning spot in my hip bone. Um, from there, my worst nightmare came true. Um, we got the report back and it showed that it was metastatic breast cancer. Um, I was mad and scared and frustrated because I did everything that I was supposed to do. I did all of the treatments that they told me to do. And all I could think about was our two boys growing up without a mom and how much it hurt to think of being apart from my husband. And I remember praying as I was reading that report and feeling so defeated that I knew deep down that God was there in the beginning and he absolutely was not gonna leave me in my darkest. So a few days after like processing that and like having those conversations with family and friends, I really felt like that long distance friend, God made the drive and he was there with me and he helped me understand that I didn't need to hang around death's door, that eternal life was on the other side. And that was so comforting. I'm getting goosebumps saying that now. Um, you know, God told me, so clearly that he was not done with me yet and I still had a purpose to fulfill here on earth so you know, I really I really held on to that for a long time and as my relationship with God has gotten stronger um, I was more at peace with how eternity would look for me and obviously I'd be lying if I said I didn't have dark days um, but now I, I truly try to spend my time and gratitude and just trying to be hopeful for the future because there's we don't know what's gonna happen um, but all I can think of is how blessed are we that if we believe in him we're given eternal life can we thank Ashley for sharing her story with us if we trust in him we're given eternal life that life of the ages begins now, Jesus says. That abundant, rich, joyful life begins now. It's clearly not you're like suddenly happy all the time. Anyone who's been walking with Jesus can give an amen to that. <laughs> but nothing, nothing can move you. I will not be afraid. Easter. Easter needs to be, if I can just speak to the Christians in the room right now. Folks, Easter needs to be the cornerstone of our life. Because all of our futures hang on it. The resurrection of the Son of God means the world, the world is not in a death spiral. We're not headed toward a slow freeze of the universe. We're headed toward renewal. So amongst all the implications of the resurrection, Easter means that there is a future worth celebrating. If death doesn't have the last word, then we need to be people of the party. 
partying like you just found out mom's cancer diagnosis, diagnosis is gone. Like you, you realize what it was to live a life worth living and got that dream job. Party like you've just heard that the war was won and that evil has been defeated because evil has been defeated. There is meaning tomorrow and the world has a future and Christ holds it. So what will you do with Jesus's claims that he is where the life is? Only a fool, only a fool never contemplates the day of their death. In him, you can have eternal life. And we are in a room of people who know that the resurrection didn't just happen, that it happens again and again and again. There is that extraordinary claim in Romans 8 that the same spirit, say same spirit, same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead can live in you now. And so we're gonna take just a few minutes before we close and I wanna encourage you to lean in as much as you can to be open, to take whatever has like been stirred up in your soul and bring it into these words. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love because the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in me. When darkness tries to roll over my bones, there's power in the resurrection. Christ is my firm foundation. He won't fail, he hasn't and he will not fail me yet. That we can lean into these promises and these truths and allow the beauty and gift of knowing the end of the story to inform whatever is at your door today. And so whatever posture right now you need to take, will you take it? To close your eyes, to open your hands and to bring whatever is in your heart and soul to the Lord. If you wanna be prayed for, there'll be people up front here who would love to pray with you. But let us sit in this moment and declare the power and 